Hello and welcome to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and fibre markets. I'm Olivia Agar. Thank you for listening in to another week for an episode that I'm very excited to bring you today. Weather and exciting are not usually two words I'd string together in the same sentence, but there is an exception on this one. We know conditions have been good, crops are looking good, harvest has started for some and a few months away yet for others, but we are coming up to a critical period for the finish of the crop and it's largely up to the weather gods now. So today we're joined by Eric Snodgrass and Eric is the Principal Atmospheric Scientist for Nutrien based in Illinois in the US. So he's part of the extended Nutrient Ag Solutions family for us here and we've been very glad to be able to tap into his weather report videos and his research and to have him as a guest on the podcast today. So you'll hear very soon that Eric definitely knows his stuff, he knows how to explain it, having a background as a director for the Department of Atmospheric Science at the University of Illinois. But importantly for us today, he knows how weather events influence agricultural productivity, not just in the US, but all around the globe, including little old Australia. So there is plenty covered in today's episode from climate indicators, what we can expect from the weather in the next few months, whether there is much risk of frost and how climatic conditions in other countries are affecting our markets. Speaking of markets, though, a few highlights before we get into the episode. We are back on a record roll for young cattle markets, with the Eki hitting a new all-time high again this week. There's plenty wondering when the peak is going to come and how far prices might fall, but the good news is that the downside keeps going up. And by that, we mean that our export beef markets, which provide a base for cattle prices, have also been rising. More new season lambs appear to be coming onto the market now in Victoria. There was quite a big increase in Ballarat this week and prices were softer in Victoria, but much stronger in New South Wales and South Australia, which saw a stronger lamb and sheep market overall. Well, that's it from me. I'll hand over to Robert Herman and Eric Snodgrass. Yes, thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be able to welcome Eric along to the Commodity Conversations podcast. And talking about weather, I mean, I'm sure that Australian farmers are no different to anybody else in the world in that weather is something that really interests them. But today, we're going to get some really good analysis and insights um, based on the webinar I've seen you do, Eric. So firstly, Mm -hmm. welcome to Commodity Conversations and um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're obviously um, interested principally right now in weather in in Australia. Just talk a little bit about the models you use and the data you collect to give you the insights that we saw on uh, on the presentation you made about Australian weather and the outlook for, you know, the next few months. Yeah, I'll use anything and everything that we can get our hands on. And I love the stuff that comes from BOMB. That's a great resource. You have a, a very good national weather service. And, uh, and BOMB often puts out some outstanding uh, data and also some good analysis. So I like to pair from that. I love to use the model that comes from the European Center from Medium Range Weather Forecasting. We call it the European model or the ECMWF. 
It is globally the best weather forecast model in existence, but I'll even pare it down with some models we run in the US that also forecast globally. And we look at all of it to see where things line up and where things diverge. And then from that, we can start to use meteorological skill to assess and understand where a particular weather forecast is going. So it's something that I stare at multiple times a day because we run these models four times a day on supercomputers and they produce these forecasts and we look for the little updates and the shifts and the, and the trends and try to make sense of it. So we, we all hear a lot about uh, La Nina and the Southern Oscillation Index mm-hmm. and they're things that aren't directly over the top of Australia, but they certainly influence our weather, Eric, don't they? Absolutely. So the Southern Oscillation Index is a pressure difference measurement between Tahiti and Darwin. And all we're attempting to do there is we're attempting to see how the pressure pattern is going to affect the trade winds. So if there's a La Nina, those trade winds are cranked. They're moving strongly out of the east toward the west. If there is an El Nino, they've slowed or even stopped. And what ends up happening is that Southern Oscillation Index, when it goes really, really high, strong trade winds, La Nina. When it goes really, really low into negative territory, the trade winds are weak and we have an El Nino. Now, in Australia, for the most part, most folks want positive SOI, La Nina conditions, because it tends to deliver better chances of us getting the rainfall that we need. So we don't like those ocean temperatures warm out there in the Central Pacific. Well, what we do know, Eric, is we know what the conditions are now. We've, we've, mm-hmm. That's history. We've experienced them and we know where we are. And in Australia, it's, um, as you would know, it's a big, diverse country, but then so too is Canada and the US and South America. So that's not unnecessarily unusual, but we do get different patterns. In terms of pasture growth, which we are a big livestock country, mm-hmm. um, we're generally in pretty good shape, although Queensland tells us they could do with some rain right now. You know, people looking at it critically right now are those people with crops. And we have two regions. We have the west and the east, pretty much. Mm-hmm. We're now in relatively good conditions right now, and that's great. But what everybody's interested in is what's ahead. So what can you tell us about your models and and what are they saying for the next couple of months, which are critical months for um, the finish of the crop? Yeah. So let's look at it two ways. Let's answer the question two ways. We forecast uh, on kind of two different mindsets. After about 10 to 12 days, our weather forecast models are relatively reliable. In other words, they pick up on patterns. They can give you highs and lows. They can tell you, you know, your total precip. They could tell you, you know, those very critical numbers like evaporation and stuff like that. Beyond that, what we have to rely on is what we call uh, sub-seasonal to seasonal forecasting, where we look at the chance of being above or below normal, whatever variable you want, above or below. Now, here's the thing. You ask the next couple of months, and what I'm going to tell you is you will not find a weather forecast model that's going to forecast any part of Australia dry for the next two months. In other words, drier than normal, because they're all responding to these patterns that are happening in the oceans surrounding Australia. In the Pacific, we have our second go at a La Nina. And in the Indian Ocean, the what we call the Indian Ocean Dipole, it's like La Nina in the Pacific, or excuse me, in the Indian Ocean, it's negative as well. And historically, we got 70 years of data, in some places even more than that, that tell us if those two things are happening, the air is going to rise over Australia. That makes more clouds and precip, which means you have a higher probability of seeing near normal to above normal rains than you do of anything else over the next couple of months. And, you know, I understand that for certain crops, we need those rains to come in and shut off. For other crops, just bring it, keep bringing the rain and it's, we'll take it as much as we can. 
the real reason that, uh, or the real thing I'm thinking about here is that the likelihood of expansive drought development is minimized when the ocean temperatures look like they do. Now, that's really good information. Of course, we have a variety of crops and a variety of reasons. So does that information apply equally to the west of the country, to the southeast of the country where you've got winter crops, and also to the north of the country where they have a lot of summer crops? Is the information that you just outlined similar for all areas? It's not, and that's a great question. Uh, Generally speaking, the better conditions are the farther east you go and also uh, north toward Queensland as well. If there's a place that kind of gets left out a little bit of this, it's going to be Western Australia, in and around Perth. Uh, that, that Those relationships are not nearly as strong. Now, in the north, the combination of where the desert ends and where the, you know, the different terrain and geographies begin give you lots of little microclimates, which sometimes dominate more than anything else what El Nino is doing or La Nina or the Indian Ocean is doing. And so it's a very complicated forecast to the north. And then as you get to the south, especially as you get into parts of Victoria, New South Wales, the mountains that line the southeast coast, they also further complicate things because they add lift in the atmosphere when these weather systems pass just to your south, increasing rainfall. I mean, that's where your, many of your rivers are born out of the southeast is they're coming off of the, 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 the water that comes into those mountains. And so, no, it, it's not a clear cut and dry signal, uh, but generally speaking, the whole of, of Australia tends to do better than otherwise if there's a La Nina. Good question. So I'm hearing two things in your, um, in your tone of your voice there. Firstly, <laughs> the excitement of, um, of a country where there are variables and things that you've got to um, factor in, but also um, your understanding of, of Australia and the terrain. So uh, have you been out to Australia yet, Eric? <laughs> I have not. Uh, you know, and it's sad because all of my understanding of, of Australian terrain has been just staring at maps and looking at relief maps and trying to memorize, you know, places like where's the River Murray and where, where, <laughs> where is, where's Tasmania exactly? What does that ridge look like on it? And, you know, yeah. all these different things. I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed learning the geography and I have an open invitation. The moment this pandemic is done, I'm down there and we're going to tour <laughs> and, and get a good look at everything. So I'm excited to do that soon. Yeah. Well, look, there's one other factor. And um, we mentioned earlier that, um, you know, rainfall now is critical. Interestingly, Western Australia is more advanced in their crop than the East Coast always. So it's not as critical, you know, that that October um, rain uh, as it is in the East Coast, certainly in the Southeast. But the other factor is um, is frost. And, mm-hmm. um, and the reason that's important to farmers now is that we've got, we've got wonderful commodity prices. So canola prices are at decile 10, you know, wheat prices are high and farmers are looking at making forward sales and hedging. But in the back of their mind always, as it should be, is production risk. And right now, right at this time, everybody's talking about, uh, look, we've got the crops looks great, but we still could get a frost. What, what are you understanding? What's your take on that? And what's, what advice can you give farmers in thinking about that right now? Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. It was interesting. It wasn't a frost that helped push those prices to where they are when it comes to the weather. It was the fact that our friends in Canada could not produce a crop due to drought this year. I mean, the, the, the yields in Canada were just terrible because of drought. So now we get to this point where everything looks good. Let's just hope Mother Nature doesn't step in and cause problems. So when you think about the risk of a frost, be thinking about these meteorological variables. One, high pressure. Two, calm winds. 
three clear skies. When you have those three things setting up, the Earth can very, very easily radiate its heat away and give it away quickly to the atmosphere and drop those temperatures off. You keep the winds up and you keep cloud cover up and you keep weather systems moving, you minimize the risk of frost. You also get what's called cold air drainage. So if you're in a particular location where you know that you frost more often than your neighbors because of elevation, you wanna watch out when those temperatures get down to that, that one to three C range because you might be down there in that minus one to one range, which means you end up getting that frost event. Now, the good news is we just passed the equinox, which means we're gaining daylight hours, continual, uh, the sun's rays are becoming more direct, our days are getting longer, and all of those things help to prevent the risk of frost moving forward. But we do have to look out, especially the farther south you go. And as I look out here over the next couple of weeks, I do see, of course, at higher elevation in, in Victoria, New South Wales, there's gonna be still frost, that's normal. But I do see some overnight lows that are down there in that one to four C range in the next 10 days or so that could impact some folks. So we're gonna be watching it very carefully. Uh, I certainly update every video I do. I put content on like, hey, here's the temperatures, here's the timing, let's keep an eye out on this if there is a risk. The overall good news is there's no widespread risk of major damaging frost now. And that's, that's a good signal as we look forward. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's excellent because um, we're also noticing that with um, the increased moisture levels, soil moisture mm -hmm. levels and rainfall, that, um, and this is my observation, so you can correct me whether it's, whether it's right or not, but we tend to get less damaging frosts when you have yeah. that moisture in the ground. Yeah, yeah and, and the reason why is because that moisture, there's two reasons why, that moisture evaporates into the lower atmosphere. It increases your dew point temperature. So as the temperature falls down, the moment it hits dew point, you get condensation. Condensation releases heat. So there's a process that's protecting you from getting down there to that frost point. Plus the fact that there's liquid water also increases you know, it increases the, the thermal inertia of the plant itself, which means it's harder to change its temperature. So yeah, it's easier to frost when you're dry. Uh, well, Eric, I'm going to replay this later on so I can memorize that because I've been saying this situation <laughs> is, the, this is the case for a long time, but that's a really good scientific explanation. So really appreciate that. You mm. mentioned before that and, and you're, you're absolutely right. Our, our elevated prices, whether they be for, you know, our major crops here are wheat, barley and canola. Mm -hmm. And they're elevated because of the situation in, in the Northern Hemisphere and specifically Canada and the US. What's the outlook for those areas now? Because their harvest is pretty much done, I think. Is that right? Yeah, and, and, it is and done. So what's happening? We had, and, and also just the reference to the impact of, of the cyclone that went, went through. So, um, was it Ida? Yeah. So, so Ida went through our south, which is going to hit where we grow a lot of cotton, corn, soybeans, sorghum, and peanuts. And it went over our Appalachian Mountains and toward the northeast. It did a lot of damage with flooding. But it's the middle of our hurricane season. We expect these kind of things. But if you come back to, to issues we had with barley, wheat, and canola, it was the fact that the Canadian prairie got stuck under a massive ridge all summer. Those yields that came out, well, I'll just say this, from June 1st to the end of August, there were places, and that's the heart of our growing season uh, for those crops, there were places that saw under 100 millimeters of rainfall. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just not enough. And any application that was done, any, you know, anything that was put on, therefore was not being used by the crop, it's gonna cause problems for those folks later. 
and they yanked that crop out early because there was no point letting it sit there. So they're not talking at all about a frost in Canada. They don't care because the crop is out of the ground and done. And uh, and it was a pretty sad situation. It was a it's tough to forecast the weather when it seems like all you deliver is bad news. And I was mm-hmm. delivering a lot of bad news to Canada this year. Um, the, I noticed you also in your webinar you referenced the monsoon and. Uh-huh. That's of interest to us here because we do have a lot of um, pulse uh, growers, so lentils, chickpeas, et cetera, and the price is really driven by activity in that monsoon area, so India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, et cetera. What's happening there? Because if we, can, if, if we are seeing very good growing conditions there, we're likely to see poorer demand for our pulses and lentils and, and chickpeas out of Australia, whereas if we are seeing the risk of a failed monsoon, then, uh, then we suddenly see those countries coming to us looking for supply. So what's happening yeah. in that area? Right? Yeah, so, so the monsoon is, of course, getting ready to end. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a summer-type phenomenon. And the way that the Indian Meteorological Department loves to kind of convey the strength of the monsoon is I like to give it to you in percentages. And they say that if you're anything outside of plus or minus 4% of normal, there starts to be problems. Now, the early season was way outside of that, but what it finished was that it was at 96%. So it was a little drier right in the center part of India. But the bigger issue was, I think, the way that the monsoon came on. It was in sorts of like fits and starts. It came on big and then it would back off and then another big push. But most folks in India would say, well, that's kind of how it is. So when you look back on it, and I talked to some of the folks on our, on our, on our economics team, uh, you know, overall, we are not hearing that the monsoon came through this year in a way that was detrimental to the crop in India. Uh, but we still have to wait to see what demand is when that harvest begins. That's when the story really comes out. And then they go, well, the monsoon did this, this, and this. We yeah. don't know it until they're pulling that out and saying that there was a problem. Yeah. Now, the other, the other area that we look at closely, and it's in our southern hemisphere, is South America. And uh, mm-hmm. so they're going into a planting period now, I think, Eric. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's what right. What are their September conditions 15. Like? Mm-hmm. Well, way better than last year. So when we think about South America, their precipitation pattern, like in Brazil, is also driven by a monsoon. And it usually starts at the end of September. And this year, it's just a little late. But last year it was six weeks late and it's not doing that this year. So the moisture's coming in. They're going to plant a huge crop of soybeans first. Uh, they have some full season corn. They also plant cotton. And then there's a variety of other crops, sugar cane, coffee, all these other things. This, I'll just tell you, talking with my friends in South America, I wish I spoke Portuguese. It would have been a much easier conversation. <laughs> but, but talking with them, there is a lot of very excited uh, you know, attitudes down there because, again, Commodity prices are still supportive for those big crops, corn and soybeans in that area. Now, down into Argentina, the winter wheat crop in Argentina uh, is, is it didn't have the most ideal conditions to come out with big yields. But we often don't think about the winter wheat crop in Argentina as being a big part of our global supply. But there has been some issues there uh, in the places where they grow that. But they are right. You're right. It's uh, they're going into their spring planting. They are going at it really fast. We are expecting the largest soybean crop ever out of South America this year, the largest corn crop ever. And even if weather took off 10 percent, if weather took off 10% of their yield, it'll still be the largest crop in history down there, given how much acreage they're going to plant. 
It's, um, it's really good information because right now in Australia here, our crops are focused on and our, our farmers are focused on harvest that's coming up. Mm -hmm. but, and, but, I mean, our prices are going to be well supported because of all the things that have happened previously. But our prices will be impacted on what happens in South America and in the US and in Canada and, and Russia and the Black Sea, et cetera, mm -hmm. for the next crop. So I think the point you're making about a big planting coming because of high prices is that's pretty logical. But if we're also forecasting average, at least average, uh, weather going forward, then perhaps there is going to be some pressure come on commodity prices in the next crop for Australia. Yeah, and, and you know, one of my very good friends, his name is Dr. David Cole. He's a global ag economist. And I'm sure that you guys say this all the time there, but he always tells me, he goes, Eric, high prices cure high prices and low <laughs> prices cure low prices. And, and I, I listened to him and I've never traded a single dime or a, a single bushel of a crop. But every time I see this happen, this tends to be it. Mm -hmm. What tends to make the commodity prices really just get up there and stay supportive is if both North America and South America have back-to-back -back weather problems. Mm. Be, and I'm talking specifically about those big crops of corn and soybeans, but wheat is in there as well. Or if there's a drought that hits the Russian wheat belt or the Black Sea area, two things in a row, that double whammy keeps those prices up for a long time. So just to summarize, um, mm. and look, this has been fantastic. We're really grateful for your time on Commodity Conversations, Eric. And we're really appreciative that we've, um, we've discovered you in the nutrient fold, if you like, and uh, hopefully we can, uh, you know, access your knowledge again in the future. But to summarise, both in the, um, you know, for this crop that we're finishing off here in Australia and for the prospects for next year, how mm. would you see it? Well, I see that as long as I'm looking at cooler ocean temperatures in the Pacific, that's a good sign for, uh, for Australia. But like all good things we got to watch for an end. And I'll just tell you that when we get into our, our you know, our next year, I want to be paying attention to see if those water temperatures start to warm up and go back over to El Nino. And it's funny because in the States, we don't like talking about La Nina. We like talking no. about El Nino. El Nino brings us the rain. And so you got a lot of farmers here that are wish casting for an El Nino growing season for us next year. But yeah. you folks, I know it. Let's keep those ocean temperatures cooler. Keep the trade winds going. So overall, I think the bigger assessment in the longer term forecast is going to come from watching those ocean temperatures and their behavior. Well, look, Eric, that's, that's probably a really good way to finish off. I'm 96% confident, a bit like the monsoon, that this isn't the last time we talk to you. I really appreciate your time. I congratulate you on, on the way you go about explaining a complicated set of information. And, uh, and we really appreciate having you on Commodity Conversations. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Eric and Rob. And thank you for listening. Let us know what you thought of the episode. It's our first time focusing on the climate outlook in detail. So if you'd like to hear it again on the podcast, please let us know. As always, we'd love it if you could share the episode around with anyone you think might find it interesting and take care and we'll be back again next week.